Hi, Bill Yannick here with my partner in crime, Garrick Brown. Garrick, welcome back to The Retail Grind. Hey, Bill. How was your Halloween? Awesome. I uh, I can say it was pretty pretty low-key here in the Midwest. It was cold. Uh, I did not get tricked, I guess you could say. Nobody toilet papered my house. And uh, and we had some, some Halloweeners. How about you? Uh, you know, we've got a strange neighborhood. One, one year we'll have three kids show up, and then the next year we'll have 100. And uh, sure enough, um, we didn't have any really show up last year. And uh, this year we, we got killed to the point where, you know, uh, I, was, I was trying to buy time while my wife went to CVS to get some more candy because we, uh, we were caught flat-footed. But, um, but, you know, so, so it's a couple of days after Halloween, and you know what that means. Um, unfortunately or fortunately, it's time for the Christmas creep. Um, yep. You know, you've probably already recognized that... Uh, one, one thing that we saw in our last second uh, candy purchases was that holiday candy's already out. Yep. And, um, you know, no doubt what's, uh, what's become the industry standard now is that uh, it's, it's not the day after Thanksgiving or the weekend before Thanksgiving. It's, it's, it's the day after Halloween that, that the holiday stuff goes up. So I thought, why don't we start today by, by talking about what to expect from holiday sales for the 2023 uh, Christmas Hanukkah season uh, as we get into the final two months of the year. Awesome. Let's hear some good stuff, Garrick. Cheer us up. Cool. Okay. Well, so here's the thing. Uh, you know, what's interesting is, you know, for, for the last 18 months, sadly, you, you, you've had to listen to me talk about uh you know, the will we or won't we have a recession and the consumer has proven to be so much more resilient. <coughs> Excuse me. There, there's just one little problem there, which is that consumer credit card debt crossed the trillion dollar mark a couple of weeks ago for the first time in history. Um, you know, there was no doubt that during the pandemic, uh, people spent less. And between that and some of the... Um, the government programs that put money in some folks' pockets and what happened with the stock market. A lot of people pay down credit card debt. Uh, well, that's come back in a very huge way. And, um, you know, October is when the student loan deferrals stopped. Yep. So people are paying their student loans. That's 14% of consumers are impacted by that. And that can be a pretty big hit to especially Gen Zs and millennials. Um, so most of the predictions for this year's holiday spending are a lot more muted from last year's, uh, last year, overall holiday sales shot up, uh, depending on the source that you use to track this, uh, between five and 6%. Deloitte is predicting that holiday sales for 2023 will go up somewhere between 3.5 and 4.6%. So a little bit slower growth, but still you know, still positive. Um, and the National Retail Federation is, is looking at 3.4% growth. And that compares to their data of 5.4% a year ago. And, and certainly you've got to think that, you know, one thing that's defied all logic and gravity is that after 18 months of increased inflationary pressures taking a bite out of consumers, 
Retail sales, at least if you look at the year-over-year uh, numbers, have not gone negative yet, not once. They've, they've, they've done it on a monthly basis once or twice uh, earlier this year. And September retail sales, you know, basically doubled the estimates of, of every economist out there. Um, you know, it's really tricky because uh, the one of the nice things about an economist is that if you say that we're going to have a downturn and you just say it consistently all the time, sooner or later you're going to be right. <laughs> yep. um, the reality is, is that sooner or later something's got to give. Um, you know, the excess savings that people built up during the pandemic, which at one point was almost $3 trillion dollars, that's been burned through for the most part. Uh, U.S. savings rate now is that 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 extra surplus has dropped by about two and a half trillion. So we've worked through that. Credit card debt's on the rise. Millennials and Gen Z in particular had a three-year holiday from student loans, and now that's back on their table. So. I'm not sure that I agree with these predictions. I, I would not be surprised to see something more like a two to three percent increase as opposed to three to four. And if, and if you compare that to inflation, if we're still going forward at three three point seven high you know high threes inflation, that basically means flat. Um, so. Not not the best news, but it's still not negative. Uh, I do think one of the interesting things, you know, PricewaterhouseCooper did a really interesting survey they just released on the themes that they see for consumer spending uh, this year. And they, 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 they basically uh, queried about 4,000 consumers. And uh, one of the things that, that came out is, their data says consumers in their polls said that they're going to increase their spending by 7% this year. Obviously, polling, what people say and what they end up doing, that sometimes they align, sometimes they don't. But I do think what's, what's more interesting is in what people are saying they will spend money on. And uh, that one is where it gets really interesting because Gen Z in particular, that would be the oldest or about 27, travel, travel and restaurants and experience. And uh, those, those seem to be high on their holiday lists, higher than buying goods. So good news for the restaurant world. Good news, I think, if you're... Uh, involved in experiential retail of any type if uh, if you're one of the many pickleball uh, proprietors out there not so good though if you're looking at say apparel which uh, probably will have a lackluster holiday season one of the other big takeaways though by the way that that gen Z number 58 percent of gen Z's in their survey versus say 47% of all consumers, they said they're going to travel this holiday season. And one of the big things uh, that, that came out as well is a lot more people are just making it simple and are saying that their preferred gifts they would like to receive, 38% of all women queried said they just want gift cards. That's opposed to 26% with physical gifts. 
That number is up from last year when I believe it was about 25%. Um, couple of surprising things though. You know, over the last few years, Black Friday has had just less and less of a significance than what it used to. Just between e-commerce, between the Christmas creep and retailers starting the holiday season sooner and sooner, the group that says that they want to participate in Black Friday shopping the most are the young ones, Gen Z, um, which which is pretty interesting. Um, our Gen, uh, Bill, Gen X, uh, we really don't plan on shopping on Black Friday. Yep. The numbers are basically uh, 50% of Gen Z, but only about 25% of Gen X and uh, boomers, it's even less, it's a 20%. Uh, that said, holiday shopping is starting sooner and sooner. And one of the things that I think you're going to see across the board is sharp discounting starting really early. Um, that is especially given the fact that consumers are really struggling uh, with with pricing over the last 18 months. Um, one thing that, that we're starting to see is a number of electronics firms, uh, uh, retailers are planning on, on doing some very strong co uh, cost cutting on big screen TVs this year. Hmm. That's going to be back in play. That really hasn't been a big thing the last two years. Um, you know, I think when consumers were more flush, you, you saw a little bit later move to the discounting but don't be surprised if you see people camping out for Best Buy deals uh, over Thanksgiving uh, for, the, for the next day. Well, Garrick, that's great insight. I guess uh, some good about the economy in general. It's kind of fascinating, little different dynamics on holiday shopping. And you, you call out our generation that we're not going to be doing the holiday shop. Or we are, we are not going to be Black Friday shopping, but the younger folks might. What are some more uh, interesting insights you have as we are about to really get into the meat of the holiday season? Well, you know, one of, one of the things that, uh, that I think you could expect uh, this year, um, you know, obviously the holiday shopping is going to start earlier and earlier. Yep. Even Cyber Monday, which, which traditionally has been when the big online deals happen at the end of the Black Friday weekend, I think you're going to see a lot of that being pushed up. Um, you know, Amazon, Walmart, and a couple other major retailers are going to start offering deals earlier and earlier. Um, you know, and, and, and I, I think that just it makes perfect sense if you just look at, at the general landscape, which is, you know, one of the things about the PwC poll is that nearly 70 percent it was 67 in their polling said you know retailers said that discounts are going to play a critical role in their holiday shopping choices this year which you know it's it's going to be one of those things where i think people will be spending but they're going to be spending a lot more strategically and a lot more frugally um by the way uh one of the things i i, I think is interesting. There's there's another company that tracks consumer behavior called Medallia, who is predicting that the peak of holiday shopping season will actually be in 
late November this year, hmm. but it's going to taper off by mid-December. Um, and that's going to be a lot of it due to discounting. Their data actually is, is showing as far as time periods where they, they questioned consumers when they want to do the bulk of their holiday shopping. Now, 22% already had started in October, but basically 30% of shoppers say they want to get most of their holiday shopping done by late November. And, uh, you know, and the number just kind of drops off a cliff so that by the time you get to mid-December, it's only 18% and late December, 8%. So people have kind of trained themselves to shop earlier and look for more and more deals. And I think the inflationary pressures are going to really push that. I think the big winners this year, uh, Walmart and Target, that same Medallia uh, polling, which is a few thousand consumers, the stores that people listed that they want to go to, Walmart and Target were top, followed by Amazon. Um, and as you work down the list, uh, you know, department stores, only 25% of consumers said that they want to go to department stores this year for holiday shopping, 24% electronic stores, 22% apparel, um, about 19% are going to do their holiday shopping uh, in large part at the club retail concepts, Costco, Sam's Club, etc. cetera. Uh, and it kind of works its way down from there. You know, it's probably going to be... Uh, so-so uh, Christmas for sporting goods, where only 14% uh, of consumers said that they, they expect to do significant holiday shopping there. Um, so, you know, that's that's where, where that's coming from. I do think that, uh, you know, as, as much as I'm probably giving uh, kind of a semi- uh, I don't want to say gloomy outlook, because I do think that the consumers are going to show up you know, consumers have continued to confound economists the, the last few months with, with keeping their spending up. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if they come through again. The one thing I would have to say that we really have to watch for, though, is that the longer consumer sales stay positive as these debt levels are rising and as these savings levels are dropping, it suggests a sharper correction somewhere down the road that sooner or later there will be a pullback in consumer spending. And, you know, if this trend continues, it could be sharp and all at once. Um, you know, the question really, I think, for most economists is, is that going to be before or after the holiday shopping season? Well, and we'll definitely be talking to you during and after the shopping season. You know, before I let you go there, Garrick, I have to give you one. And maybe you could help me with a term for this whether it's called like front porch fatigue or Amazon fatigue, when you talk about not shopping on Black Friday, I swear, whether I'm at work in the office or at home, because I see it on my uh, my video at home, <laughs> the number of Amazon packages that arrive at my house every day, it's like relentless and uh, and there's no stop to that shopping, which I, I guess isn't bad for Amazon, but <laughs> for Yannick, shopping fatigue, I certainly feel it already. Uh, I don't think you're the only one there, Bill. <laughs> and we're back for the middle portion of our this episode of The Retail Grind uh, with Garrett Brown. And we have a very special guest, 
who Garrick knew in a previous life, and, and she's doing a lot of great things today. So, Garrick, I'm going to turn this over to you for the introduction, and then we'll talk with our guest. So I want to, I, I'm so ecstatic to have Melina here. She's one of the smartest people I know. Um, she had the good common sense to get out of commercial real estate research, <laughs> which I have not. <laughs> but so Melina, Melina Cordero used to run retail research for CB Richard Ellis. Um, and uh, I guess you could consider uh the two of us were very friendly, competitive. I, I, I don't think frenemy would be the right word because uh, if if you know the world of researchers, we we tend to be pretty easygoing, low key people. Uh, but she has been doing some amazing things that I've been keeping track of, and I thought she would be a great guest to talk about a really important topic today. Cool. Well, so, Derek, I'm going to let you that, do the technical stuff with Melina, but I'm going to take the real hard question off the top and and just introduce myself to Melina because we haven't met in person. This is our, our virtual get-together. But Melina, maybe you can start with uh, talking a little bit about your background. Garrick hinted or talked about your background in commercial real estate and then what you're up to today. And then I know that Garrick has some riveting questions for you uh, moving forward. So where, where have you been and, and what are you doing today? Uh, I've been all over. <laughs> So, yeah, I spent the majority of my career, as Derek mentioned, in commercial real estate, specifically in retail. Um, I did a bunch of stuff. I worked for a tech company doing mass mobile data right at the start of that technology back in 2010, around there. Um, and did end up, uh, again, as Garrick mentioned, at CBRE, where I ran global retail research for several years. And then in 2019, just before the pandemic, switched and while still at CBRE started running retail capital markets. So switched from a, a, a research role to um, more of a broker manager strategy, senior leader role um, at a time when there were a lot of things happening in the retail industry. And then the pandemic hit. And in 2021, uh, I left. Uh, I don't want to say I left the commercial real estate industry because I'm still very much connected and, and friends and, and working with organizations in the sector, but I left a role in commercial real estate to shift focus pretty significantly on what I consider culture, leadership, and diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, it was a big shift. It continues to be a big shift, uh, one that I love, but to sum it up, as a leader in the industry, living, leading through the pandemic, I saw so many really big fundamental shifts happening, not just in the industry, but in, in our workplaces, how we work, where we work, why we work. And I felt like we as leaders were not equipped enough and getting enough support on how to navigate these new challenges. And I felt like if we wanted to achieve workplaces and organizations that are successful and inclusive and people who are happy working, there's some things we need to change. And so that's what I focus on now is helping advising organizations and leaders on, on how to adapt to what I call the post-2020 workplace. So Melina, so much of so much of the discussion, um, you know, it's 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 easy to forget two years ago the big story was the great resignation. <laughs> Um, you know, that we couldn't keep employees, uh, employees working from home, hundred percent remote. 
I, I feel like uh, my theory on why there was so much turnover was that without a positive work culture surrounding you, if your job wasn't all that great, you know, like working on spreadsheets all day, like a retail researcher, <laughs> that it might inspire you to look at something else. And it was it was back then when I when I realized that you had switched gears with your profession. And I one of the things I thought was really astounding and why I wanted to talk to you about your new role in DEI was just the amount of money that companies lose from turnover, you know, due to the issues of um, racial bias, uh, workplace uh, atmosphere, that kind of thing. There was a study that actually came across from the Society of Human Resources Management that I think came out uh, early this year that said over the past five years, U.S. employers have lost $172.4 billion. And so I'm curious, when when you talk to groups, what, what, what where do you come from on this and, and how do you help find groups tackle these challenges? Yeah. So your stats that you're mentioning around the cost of losing people is, is a really good response to that question because we need to stop talking about these challenges like retention or hiring as simply an HR thing. These are core company growth strategy challenges. So if you are a leader or you're an organization that cares about your future growth, if you're not thinking about this, you're you're missing something big time, right? And because retention costs money, uh, recruitment costs money, training costs money. And speaking of the great resignation, you know, all the studies that have come out since 2021 when that really peaked and it, and it continues to be elevated is that the number one reason people are leaving their their roles, a lot of times they're citing, quote unquote, toxic culture. And that can be toxic culture at the level of the organization where they feel like it's mismanaged, they don't trust leadership, but it can also be happening just within an immediate team. You can have a culture, an organization with fantastic culture, but their immediate team or their immediate manager is so poorly equipped to be leading them and their growth that that they say, I'm out. And then interestingly, the when you look at the research around not so much people leaving jobs, but people looking for jobs and choosing companies, top talent especially, it's clear that what they're looking for has changed since the pandemic. They're paying a lot more attention to culture. They're paying a lot more attention to inclusiveness. They're paying a lot more attention to how diverse the office is and what the work-life balance is. And part of that is because who is working has changed. So we have for the first time in a very long time, four or five generations coexisting, co-working in the same organizations. Gen Z has come in, which in a good way for, for me, right? When I started out, everyone was complaining about millennials and now the heat's off me and they're complaining about Gen Z. Gen Z wants different things. They're demanding different things. They're lazy. They don't want to commit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've heard it all before. But... They're a pretty formidable bunch. 
they're entering the workforce, they're going to create a, they're going to constitute a larger proportion of the workforce. And whether you like it or not, you have to pay attention to what they want and what they need. And they are placing new demands on companies around culture, around inclusion. And I would argue most importantly, they're way more diverse than any other generation that's worked in the U.S. before. So if you're not I think that's about, a, a really yeah, big one. It's huge. That, that a lot of people don't think through. If you combine the millennial and the Gen Z generations, they're roughly 50% of the total population, but even a greater number of the workforce. Yep. Exactly. So how do you feel um, some of these changes may have been accelerated by remote work or hybrid models? Do you think that that's also been a factor? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that spending more time at home, having those blurred lines between work and home and family and all the things generally drove a lot of sort of existential questioning about what do I want for my life? What do I want for my family? What do I want? Et cetera, et cetera. Health, you know, there was a lot of people faced significant life events through the pandemic, right? And you can't underestimate the impact that a wake-up call like that can have. And so I think there was this general questioning of what am I doing? Why am I doing what, what I'm doing? Do I feel valued? Do I feel happy? And there's also this chain reaction, right? So many people leaving their jobs among your friends, your family, et cetera, it makes you question too. And so I, I think that was that was a lot of it. And and people, especially, especially women and people of color who have traditionally felt higher levels of burnout, stress, discrimination, exclusion in the workplace, saying enough. And the stats do tell us, um, you know, even as as recently as a year ago, there was a McKinsey study that came out showing that a disproportionate number of senior level women were leaving corporate roles, very similar to the role I occupied, right? Senior level, female leader leaving, a lot of times to start their own company, to work freelance, um, escaping in a lot of ways the, the challenges and obstacles that, that a lot of us can face in a traditional working environment. I'm curious. There's so many different views of what DEI is now, and, and it's become somewhat politicized. Um, what do you think are the biggest misperceptions that are out there uh, when it comes to, to promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion? Great question. And there are so many, right? And I'll start off by saying that I have actually moved away from talking about and using the terms DEI. I still use them. They're still very important. But to your point, they've become so politicized. And this happens in over time that words and terminology, we have to change and adapt and evolve. It's become so politically charged that it's distracting. So when I sat down and I think about what is it that I'm actually doing? What is it that I'm actually trying to change? What is it that I believe in? It's actually about leadership. So one of the things I think that's holding companies back, one of the biggest misconceptions is DEI is its own thing. It's a lead, it's an HR thing. 
and then it gets relegated and someone in this department gets put in charge of it and you know then nobody really pays attention this not it's as i mentioned earlier this is a a fundamental growth strategy for organizations and how do we equip our leaders and our organizations to support and manage teams that are more diverse than ever before because so often when we talk about DEI work we're looking at how can we support our women how can we support people of color how can we create opportunities for them but not often enough are we looking at ourselves at our leaders and saying how can we help our leaders better sponsor manage support diversity in the workplace so i think how we approach it needs to change and how we talk about it as well that brings up a, a real good question, Melina, and, and I am fascinated by this. You've seen these articles, what is next for DEI? So the organization Connects FM is a trade association, like almost everyone else, about three or four years ago, formed a DEI committee, started to bring in consultants and talk. And, and one of the things I hope we're doing as an organization, and I think we are, is that it isn't just the knee-jerk committee, then it's its own thing, <clears throat> and then when it's not front and center, goes to the back. We're trying to integrate it across the organization. So real, real easy question for you. What is, what's next? You talked about maybe framing, it is a leadership equation. It's all this thing. What's next for DEI? Yeah. Great question. Big question. Because I think we've hit a really critical point, which you're, you're kind of alluding to, right? You said, like everybody else, we did our, our DEI committee. If you remember peak of July 2020, all the big public companies started hiring chief diversity officers. And now we're starting to see those roles sort of disappear, disintegrate in certain cases, right? So I agree. I think we're at a sort of inflection point where there's pushback, there are costs involved, and there's a lot of frustration about the results, both from, from leaders and organizations and, and, and from those of us who are underrepresented in our various industries saying, you know, these committees or these things or these initiatives, like they're not actually changing anything. So in terms of what's next, there's what I hope is next, right? What I'm, what I'm pushing for and working really hard for is next is that we think about this in a different way. Um, and one of the things is we need to stop doing copy paste of whatever the other companies are doing. We should do it too. And it's very performative, right? I think we need to get a little uncomfortable. In, in a safe way. So one thing is, I think that we need to recognize that DEI is not a one-off thing. We create a strategy and then that's it, right? It's ongoing. I think it's ongoing learning. It's ongoing change. You know, if you look at an example, I use a lot is terminology, right? So if you look at gender pronouns or even I, I did a piece on Hispanic Heritage Month, which we're currently um, living through, what terminology are we supposed to use? And people are so afraid of getting it wrong and saying the wrong thing and getting canceled and, and, and being accused of being discriminatory. That it's people are in, in a, this kind of fight or flight. I, I can't deal with this. I don't want to, I don't want to get it wrong. And so for what's next with DEI, one of the things I'm doing is trying to rip that bandaid off of it's okay. It's okay to get it wrong. It's okay to not know. But let's talk about it. Like, let's go there. So I started a project called Uncomfortable Questions where I, where people can anonymously submit these questions and these challenges they face. Like, I have this situation. I don't know how to handle it. 
Um, I'm trying to hire diversity, but I can't find them. Right. Um, and I think we need to just go there um, and, and keep the conversation going. And I also think that what's next for, for DEI is those initiatives, those approaches that have not been working are starting to fall apart. And I think that the accountability that we as employees are demanding of our organizations is going to rise. And we've seen it. We've seen people with the rise of social media, um, companies, it's harder for them to have a misstep. It's costly. Fascinating stuff. And, and I love what you say too. And we try this certainly at Connects FM too. The intent is everything, right? If someone has good intentions and a good heart and are trying to do the right thing, you have to be careful if they do get it wrong that you don't you know, chop them off the knees because that doesn't, yes. doesn't get us anywhere. And even in organizations, if the intent was just to check a box and form a committee, well, then it becomes obvious after a couple of years okay. that it's not going to be a long-term, long-term thing. Interesting stuff. Garrick, back to you. I, well, you know, I've got to say that the topic is so timely. I just came back from uh, the crew convention um, in, in Atlanta a few weeks ago. And, of course, that's the the major uh, organization supporting women in commercial real estate. And one statistic that came out that I just find so challenging is that my industry – about 38% of the employees are female. Less than 9% are in leadership roles. They don't even have data on how many brokers there are. Um, on the retail front, there do tend to be a little bit more female uh, professionals. Uh, there's just almost no industrial female brokers. Uh and most of the women in our industry are property managers, they're administrative, they're in the lower paying roles. Mm -hmm. And what really was challenging is that their numbers that they last run, which for, for about a couple of years ago, have not moved in 15 years. And uh, as someone who loves my industry, but has known this is a glaring problem that's been there since I joined it 25 years ago... <laughs> I am curious what you could suggest to those of us in commercial real estate to do more outreach, especially on the brokerage side, to get more women and minority involvement. Yeah, really, really important data points and, and question. I'm actually working with a number of organizations in commercial real estate, including industrial. So I know the challenge is intimately well there, right? And, and lack of representation. I think we have to be really, really honest with what the challenges are and um, recognize, especially in brokerage and leadership, this is a super social industry. It's an industry built on relationships and a lot of times deals that are done outside of the office, outside of the boardroom. And one of the most common things that happens is that women aren't invited to the boondoggle, the ski trip, the whatever it might be, which is where these relationships are formed and, and cultivated. And so that is a cultural 
tradition within the industry that that needs to change over time? Is it going to change tomorrow? No. Are you going to tell your your mail brokers to to boycott any sort of client event if if it's not diverse? Like, no, that's probably not good for your business, right? Or for your client relationships. But I do think we need to be a lot more proactive in making sure we're creating opportunities that compensate for these challenges and exclusions that women face in the industry, especially at, at senior levels. Um, at junior levels, I think it's really, really important that we focus on sponsorships. So we tend to over-focus on recruiting, which is important. We want to hire diversity, but we drop the ball when it comes to keeping them and cultivating them and growing them. And so one of the things I really advocate for is male leaders, whether you're middle management, senior management, make sure you're sponsoring, that you're mentoring, that you're connecting with your junior female employees. A lot of times we have this assumption that people want to be mentored and sponsored by people who look like them or have a lot in common. No. And actually the research showing that the impact that male sponsorship can have on junior female employees, especially white male sponsors of junior female employees and employees of color, it's huge. And it's also a fantastic learning opportunity for senior leaders um, I work with a lot of, of white male senior leaders who have the best intentions in the world. But when you haven't had experience managing leading diverse teams, how are you supposed to know all the challenges? How are you supposed to know what to do if you don't even know what the challenges are? And so it's an amazing way also for leaders to learn about some of these challenges and come up with their ideas about how to address them. So sponsorship. Uh, is a is a big thing. So if you're a, a, a white male leader out in the industry, I challenge each of you to identify a, a, a female junior employee and and take them under your wing. You know, I've had the uh, great pleasure of seeing you speak uh, a multiple multiple times, and you've got some great stuff on LinkedIn. Um, if if some of our listeners want to reach out to you. Uh, which which I completely advise is worth your time. How can they reach you, Melina? Well, LinkedIn is a fantastic way to get in touch. I'm very active on there. I post a lot of data points, research. It's a primary way that I that I share information and ideas um, about leadership and DEI. I also have a newsletter. I mentioned uncomfortable questions earlier. So this is a newsletter um, I run via email and also on LinkedIn. So you can find it there. Um, and it's a weekly newsletter that comes out, a short video, less than five minutes, that addresses a tough question that I've received that people submit. Everything from, you know, I mentioned earlier, what's the difference between Latinx and Hispanic um, to what's the difference between sponsorship and mentorship, right? Just a really rich set of questions. And I also offer advisory services and speaking to uh, all sorts of organizations on culture. I provide culture audits. I help build strategies for companies. Um, and I'm also very excited to be coming out uh, this year with a digital platform called P20, which stands for Post 2020, that functions almost like a Netflix of DEI and leadership training. And one of the challenges I've seen in this work is that if you're a smaller company or organization, you feel like you don't have the resources, the staff to actually execute some of these leadership and DEI needs, right? 
And so I'm trying to change that and, and equip smaller, medium-sized companies with resources, learning tools, workshops that's super accessible. So um, my platform is called P20 that I will be coming out with uh, very soon this year. Um, it's currently recruiting uh, early, what I call early bird partners to participate in the platform with me. Uh, and so it's exciting because it features a lot of diverse experts on different topics and focused on short videos, really useful resources that companies can use to equip their managers and leaders. That's awesome stuff, Melina. Look forward to, to, well, we've connected with you online and seeing you, I bet, at a Connects FM event in the not-too-distant future, and we'll check out the P20, um, and really appreciate you joining us on this episode of The Retail Grind. And we're back. So earlier in this episode, we talked with Garrick and Garrick gave us, I guess, a middle of the road, a little bit gloomy picture of maybe what the holiday shopping season may or may not be or thereafter. Garrick, what are you seeing when you drill down now a narrow, narrower focus into retail? Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, October is a big conference month. We were out in Chicago. And then, of course, I, uh, I, I got the privilege of speaking at ICSC, uh, the South. West, the Southeast region, uh, event yep. in Atlanta. And then a couple of weeks later, I was at their Western conference in San Diego. And, you know, the interesting thing that, that we're seeing in the retail front, uh, to some, to some degree, at least as far as the real estate goes, is that retail is becoming a victim of its own recent success in that, uh, it's getting harder and harder for chains and expansion mode to find space. Huh. Um, literally, I can't tell you how many times I have heard site selection guys for some of the major chains that are growing, you know, whether it's say uh, five below family dollar, dollar tree, Casey's general store, um, you know, all of the fitness concepts are growing Tons of QSRs, fast food, fast casual, uh, from cookie guys, you know, cookies, cookies, boba tea, coffee are all, oh, and chicken concepts all in hot growth mode. But the challenge is, is that, you know, it has not penciled to build new retail space. Huh. In a long time, and what we what we're really looking at is the reason why those retail apocalypse headlines of a few years ago have gone away is that a the weakest players were kind of cleared from the herd with uh, with COVID and pandemic and just a brutal 2020, and and the retailers that that emerged from that were all stronger spots. They've got the balance right between e-commerce and how many stores you actually need today as opposed to what they had, you know, 20 years ago. And so, so many are in growth mode, but we haven't really built anything since the financial crisis. And the stuff that is, that is going forward, it's really hard to make the rents work. Um, where retailers will be able to afford it and not just be, you know, situations where a restaurant will open and even if they do well, because they're paying more for food and they're paying more for labor and now they're paying more for rents, that it just doesn't work out. And, you know, 18 months later, they're out of business. Mm -hmm. So 
what, what's really odd, and, and let me give you a good example of this. Uh, in 2016, when Toys R Us went bankrupt and liquidated, they vacated nearly 800 stores. It took the better part of three years to backfill with tenants 75% of those stores. Now, if you look at Bed Bath and Bye Bye Baby, which liquidated in June, that was nearly 900 stores. By the time we get to December 31st, 50% of those stores will already be occupied. Wow. And the numbers I was hearing being thrown around from people, I and mean, you know, I was grilling every landlord with bed bath space or bye bye baby space at both of these shows, was that universally almost all of the vacant space that's still out there has offers out on it. So the rate at which these vacancies are being backfilled uh, is pretty astounding. It's, it's not, nothing I've seen in my career. And what was shocking is how many brokers I was coming across that were saying, you know what, if we did have a recession and it was short and shallow, uh, you know, first off, the market can handle a few more bankruptcies. So the Rite Aid bankruptcy, which, by the way, so far, they, they've, they've only said they're going to close another 150 stores. This is not going to be a liquidation. They're not going out of business. Okay. Uh, that, that space is going to be filled pretty quickly. There, there is some talk that Express is in trouble, that they may be facing a bankruptcy. Uh, Joann's is another retailer that's on some bankruptcy watch lists. The thing is, that space will probably move pretty quickly. And, and the mentality that I, 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 I'm seeing from the brokerage community is that retail's at a point where it's resilient enough that if we did have a short, brief downturn, it may actually be good for the commercial real estate industry, especially if it means a, that the Fed backs off of interest rate hikes and they just met, um, they just met a couple of days ago and decided the second month in a row not to raise rates again. But if it meant that they had to lower them by 50 basis points or so, a lot of investment money that's been sitting on the sidelines would probably come back into the market and the economy would probably roar back pretty quickly. So, you know, good and bad. Um, you know, it is, it is kind of interesting that uh, we, we went from uh, the sky is falling in retail to, you know, now retail, it's just hard to find good quality space because everybody, uh, you know, everybody's chasing the same quality shopping centers. So it's, it's, it's really been a reversal that's, that's kind of unheard of. And, and it's, uh, you know, I, I feel for the poor guys in the office market that have to lease office space because uh, they're facing... The challenge is retail had 20 years to kind of work itself through and get to the other side, but theirs has been condensed really into a two, three year period. So that said, uh, you know, the challenge right now uh, for, for retail is just going to be more about the consumer continuing to show up. And if you're in growth mode, can, can you live up to your growth goals and, and find real estate that makes sense? at rents that make sense um, as opposed to overpaying and, you know, eventually getting yourself into a situation where your, your store can't uh, make things work because of the economics of your lease. Good stuff. Nice way to put a bow on it. Uh, Garrick, we appreciate the updates, both the economic in general 
and uh, as we drill down the retail economy. And we're going to be talking to you again in a few weeks as we approach uh, Black Friday. Any, uh, you're going to be out on the road here before the, the holiday season, or have you, are you packing it in for the year? I've got a little bit of a break. I've got a little bit of a break. Uh, you know, the next next big wave of conferences and, and such will be in January uh, when we have our end of the year numbers, and uh, and so I, I get to rest up, and I'm 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 enjoying that quite a bit. It, uh, it, you know, you're the real road warrior here, Bill. But uh, I'll tell you, when you haven't done it for a while and you get back out there, you realize just how much energy it takes just navigating airports, <laughs> you know? Yep. Yeah, for sure. Well, Garrick, thanks again for your time and uh, and look forward to talking again here in a few weeks. And for audience out there, this is your retail grind. Check us out on all major platforms and certainly at connectsfm.com. <laughs>